But once in Christ, we shall never be out of Christ. Once let our name be placed in the Lamb's book of life, and we belong to a home which shall continue forevermore. One, and now before I conclude, let me ask every reader of this paper a plain question. Have you got a home for your soul? Is it safe? Is it pardoned? Is it justified? Is it prepared to meet God? With all my heart I wish you a happy home. But remember my question. Amidst the greetings and salutations of home, amidst the meetings and partings, amidst the laughter and merriment, amidst the joys and sympathies and affections, think, think of my question. Have you got a home for your soul? Our earthly homes will soon be closed forever. Time hastens on with giant strides. Old age and death will be upon us before many years have passed away. Oh, seek an abiding home for the better part of you, the part that never dies. Before it be too late, seek a home for your soul. Seek Christ, that you may be safe. Woe to the man who is found outside the ark when the flood of God's wrath bursts at length on a sinful world. Seek Christ, that you may be happy. None have a real right to be cheerful, merry, light-hearted, and at ease, excepting those who have got a home for their souls. Once more I say, seek Christ without delay. Two, if Christ is the home of your soul, accept a friendly caution. Beware of being ashamed of your home in any place or company. The man who is ashamed of the home where he was born, the parents that brought him up when a baby, the brothers and sisters that played with him, that man, as a general rule, may be set down as a mean and despicable being. But what shall we say of the man who is ashamed of him who died for him on the cross? What shall we say of the man who is ashamed of his religion, ashamed of his master, ashamed of his home? Take care that you are not that man. Whatever others around you please to think, do you never be ashamed of being a Christian? Let them laugh and mock and jest and scoff if they will. They will not scoff in the hour of death and in the day of judgment. Hoist your flag, show your colors, nail them to the mast. Of drinking, gambling, lying, swearing, Sabbath-breaking, idleness, pride, you may well be ashamed. Of Bible-reading, praying, and belonging to Christ, you have no cause to be ashamed at all. Let those laugh that win. A good soldier is never ashamed of his queen's colors and his uniform. Take care that you are never ashamed of your master. Never be ashamed of your home. 3. If Christ is the home of your soul, accept a piece of friendly advice. Let nothing tempt you to stray away from home. 
The world and the devil will often try hard to make you drop your religion for a little season and walk with them. Your own flesh will whisper that there is no danger in going a little with them and that it can do you no mighty harm. Take care, I say. Take care when you are tempted in this fashion. Take care of looking back like Lot's wife. Forsake not your home. There are pleasures in sin, no doubt, but they are not real and satisfactory. There is an excitement and short-lived enjoyment in the world's ways beyond all question, but it is joy that leaves a bitter taste behind it. Oh, no, wisdom's ways alone are ways of pleasantness, and wisdom's paths alone are paths of peace. Cleave to them strictly, and turn not aside. Follow the Lamb whithersoever He goes. Stick to Christ in His rule through evil report and good report. The longer you live, the happier you will find His service. The more ready will you be to sing in the highest sense, There is no place like home. For if Christ is the home of your soul, accept a hint about your duty. Mind that you take every opportunity of telling others about your happiness. Tell them that wherever you are. Tell them that you have a happy home. Tell them if they will hear you, that you find Christ a good master and Christ's service a happy service. Tell them that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Tell them that Whatever the devil may say, the rules of your home are not grievous and that your master pays far better wages than the world does. Try to do a little good wherever you are. Try to enlist more inmates for your happy home. Say to your friends and relatives, if they will listen as one did of old, come with us and we will do you good, for the Lord hath spoken good concerning Israel. Numbers 10, verse 29. Chapter 18. Heirs of God. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. Romans 8, 14-17 The people of whom St. Paul speaks in the verses before our eyes are the richest people upon earth. It must needs be so. They are called heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. The inheritance of these people is the only inheritance really worth having. All others are unsatisfying and disappointing. They bring with them many cares. They cannot cure an aching heart or lighten a heavy conscience. They cannot keep off family troubles. 
They cannot prevent sicknesses, bereavements, separations, and deaths. But there is no disappointment among the heirs of God. The inheritance I speak of is the only inheritance which can be kept forever. All others must be left in the hour of death if they have not been taken away before. The owners of millions of pounds can carry nothing with them beyond the grave, but it is not so with the heirs of God. Their inheritance is eternal. The inheritance I speak of is the only inheritance which is within everybody's reach. Most men can never obtain riches and greatness, though they labor hard for them all their lives. But glory, honor, and eternal life are offered to every man freely who is willing to accept them on God's terms. Whosoever will may be an heir of God and joint heir with Christ. If any reader of this paper wishes to have a portion of this inheritance, let him know that he must be a member of that one family on earth to which it belongs, and that is the family of all true Christians. You must become one of God's children on earth if you desire to have glory in heaven. I write this paper in order to persuade you to become a child of God this day if you are not one already. I write it to persuade you to make sure work that you are one if at present you have only a vague hope and nothing more. None but true Christians are the children of God. None but the children of God are heirs of God. Give me your attention while I try to unfold to you these things and to show the lessons contained in the verses which head this page. 1. Let me show the relation of all true Christians to God. They are sons of God. 2. Let me show the special evidences of this relation. True Christians are led by the Spirit. They have the spirit of adoption. They have the witness of the Spirit. They suffer with Christ. 3. Let me show the privileges of this relation. True Christians are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. First, let me show the relation of all true Christians to God. They are God's sons. I know no higher and more comfortable word that could have been chosen. To be servants of God, to be subjects, soldiers, disciples, friends, all these are excellent titles, but to be the sons of God is a step higher still. What says the scripture? The servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. John 8.35 To be son of the rich and noble in this world, to be son of the princes and kings of the earth, this is commonly reckoned a great temporal advantage and privilege. But to be a son of the King of kings and Lord of lords, to be a son of the High and Holy One who inhabiteth eternity, this is something far higher and yet 
This is the portion of every true Christian. The son of an earthly parent looks naturally to his father for affection, maintenance, provision and education. There is a home always open to him. There is a love which, generally speaking, no bad conduct can completely extinguish. All these are things belonging even to the sonship of this world. Think then, how great is the privilege of that poor sinner of mankind who can say of God, He is my Father. But how can sinful men like ourselves become sons of God? When do we enter into this glorious relationship? We are not the sons of God by nature. We were not born so when we came into the world. No man has a natural right to look to God as his father. It is a vile heresy to say that he has. Men are said to be born poets and painters, but men are never born sons of God. The epistle to the Ephesians tells us, Ye were by nature children of wrath, even as others. Ephesians 2, 3 The epistle of St. John says, The children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God. 1 John 3.10 The Catechism of the Church of England wisely follows the doctrine of the Bible and teaches us to say, By nature we are born in sin and children of wrath. Yes, we are all rather children of the devil than children of God. Sin is indeed hereditary and runs in the family of Adam. Grace is anything but hereditary, and holy men have not, as a matter of course, holy sons. How then and when does this mighty change and translation come upon men? When and in what manner do sinners become the sons and daughters of the Lord Almighty? Second Corinthians 6.18 Men become sons of God in the day that the Spirit leads them to believe on Jesus Christ for salvation and not before. Ryle adds in the footnote, The reader will, of course, understand that I am not speaking now of children who die in infancy or of persons who live and die idiots. What says the epistle to the Galatians? Ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.26 What says the first epistle to the Corinthians? Of him are ye in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.30 What says the Gospel of John? As many as received Christ, to them gave he power or privilege to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. John 1.12 Faith unites the sinner to the Son of God and makes him one of his members. Faith makes him one of those in whom the Father sees no spot and is well pleased. Faith marries him to the beloved Son of God and entitles him to be reckoned among the sons. Faith gives him fellowship with the Father and the Son. 
First John 1 John 1.3 Faith grasps him into the Father's family and opens up to him a room in the Father's house. Faith gives him life instead of death and makes him instead of being a servant, a son. Show me a man that has this faith and whatever be his church or denomination, I say that he is a son of God. This is one of those points we should never forget. You and I know nothing of a man's sonship until he believes. No doubt the sons of God are foreknown and chosen from all eternity and predestinated to adoption. But remember, it is not till they are called in due time and believe. It is not till then that you and I can be certain they are sons. It is not till they repent and believe that the angels of God rejoice over them. The angels cannot read the book of God's election. They know not who are His hidden ones in the earth. Psalm 83.3 They rejoice over no man till he believes. But when they see some poor sinner repenting and believing, then there is joy among them. Joy that one more brand is plucked from the burning and one more son and heir born again to the Father in heaven. Luke 15.10 But once more I say, you and I know nothing certain about a man's sonship to God until he believes on Christ. I warn you to beware of the delusive notion that all men and women are alike children of God, whether they have faith in Christ or not. It is a wild theory which many are clinging to in these days, but one which cannot be proved out of the Word of God. It is a perilous dream with which many are trying to soothe themselves, but one from which there will be a fearful waking up at the last day. That God, in a certain sense, is the universal Father of all mankind, I do not pretend to deny. He is the great first cause of all things. He is the creator of all mankind, and in Him alone all men, whether Christians or heathens, live and move and have their being. All this is unquestionably true. In this sense, Paul told the Athenians, a poet of their own had truly said, We are his offspring. Acts 17.28 But this sonship gives no man a title to heaven. The sonship which we have by creation is one which belongs to stones, trees, beasts, or even to the devils as much as to us. Job 1 verse 6 that God loves all mankind with a love of pity and compassion, I do not deny. His tender mercies are over all His works. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He has no pleasure in the death of him that dieth. All this I admit to the full. In this sense, our Lord Jesus tells us, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him 
should not perish, but have eternal life. Psalm 145, verse 9, 2 Peter 3, verse 9, Ezekiel 18, 32, John 3, 16, but that God is a reconciled and pardoning Father to any but the members of His Son, Jesus Christ, and that any are members of Jesus Christ who do not believe on Him for salvation, this is a doctrine which I utterly deny. The holiness and justice of God are both against the doctrine. They make it impossible for sinful men to approach God excepting through the Mediator. They tell us that God out of Christ is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12.29 The whole system of the New Testament is against the doctrine. That system teaches that no man can claim interest in Christ unless he will receive Him as His mediator and believe on Him as His Savior. Where there is no faith in Christ, it is a dangerous error to say that a man may take comfort in God as his Father. God is a reconciled Father to none but the members of Christ. It is unreasonable to talk of the view I am now upholding as narrow-minded and harsh. The gospel sets an open door before every man. Its promises are wide and full. Its invitations are earnest and tender. Its requirements are simple and clear. Only believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and whosoever thou art, thou shalt be saved. But to say that proud men who will not bow their necks to the easy yoke of Christ and worldly men who are determined to have their own way and their sins, to say that such men have a right to claim an interest in Christ and a right to call themselves sons of God, is to say what never can be proved from Scripture. God offers to be their father, but he does it on certain distinct terms. They must draw near to Him through Christ. Christ offers to be their Savior, but in doing it, He makes one simple requirement. They must commit their souls to Him and give Him their hearts. They refuse the terms and yet dare to call God their Father. They scorn the requirement and yet dare to hope that Christ will save them. God is to be their Father, but on their own terms. Christ is to be their Savior, but on their own conditions. What can be more unreasonable? What can be more proud? What can be more unholy than such a doctrine as this? Let us beware of it, for it is a common doctrine in these latter days. Let us Beware of it, for it is often speciously put forward and sounds beautiful and charitable in the mouth of poets, novelists, sentimentalists, and tender-hearted women. Let us beware of it, unless we mean to throw aside our Bible altogether and set up ourselves to be wiser than God. Let us stand fast on the old scriptural ground, no sonship to God without Christ, no interest in Christ 
without faith. I would to God there was not so much cause for giving warnings of this kind. I have reason to think they need to be given clearly and unmistakably. There is a school of theology rising up in this day which appears to be most eminently calculated to promote infidelity, to help the devil, and to ruin souls. It comes to us like Joab to Amasa, with the highest professions of charity, liberality, and love. God is all mercy and love, according to this theology. His holiness and justice are completely left out of sight. Hell is never spoken of in this theology. Its talk is all of heaven. Damnation is never mentioned. It is treated as an impossible thing. All men and women are to be saved. Faith and the work of the Spirit are refined away into nothing at all. Everybody who believes anything has faith. Everybody who thinks anything has the Spirit. Everybody is right. Nobody is wrong. Nobody is to blame for any action he may commit. It is the result of his position. It is the effect of circumstances. He is not accountable for his opinions any more than for the color of his skin. He must be what he is. The Bible is a very imperfect book. It is old-fashioned. It is obsolete. We may believe just as much of it as we please and no more. Of all this theology are warned men solemnly to beware. In spite of big swelling words about liberality and charity and broad views and new lights and freedom from bigotry and so forth, I do believe it to be a theology that leads to hell. A. Facts are directly against the teachers of this theology. Let them visit Mesopotamia and see what desolation reigns where Nineveh and Babylon once stood. Let them go to the shores of the Dead Sea and look down into its mysterious bitter waters. Let them travel in Palestine and ask what has turned that fertile country into a wilderness. Let them observe the wandering Jews scattered over the face of the world without a land of their own, and yet never absorbed among other nations. And then let them tell us, if they dare, that God is so entirely a God of mercy and love that He never does and never will punish sin. B. The conscience of man is directly against these teachers. Let them go to the bedside of some dying child of the world and try to comfort him with their doctrines. Let them see if their vaunted theories will calm his gnawing, restless anxiety about the future and enable him to depart in peace. Let them show us, if they can, a few well-authenticated cases of joy and happiness in death without Bible promises, without conversion, and without that faith in the blood of Christ which old-fashioned theology enjoins. Alas, when men are leaving the world, conscience makes sad work of the new systems of these latter days. 
conscience is not easily satisfied in a dying hour, that there is no such thing as hell. See, every reasonable conception that we can form of a future state is directly against these teachers. Fancy a heaven which should contain all mankind. Fancy a heaven in which holy and unholy, pure and impure, good and bad, would be all gathered together in one confused mass. What point of union would there be in such a company? What common bond of harmony and brotherhood? What common delight in a common service? What concord? What harmony? What peace? What oneness of spirit could exist? Surely the mind revolts from the idea of a heaven in which there would be no distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between Pharaoh and Moses, between Abraham and the Sodomites, between Paul and Nero, between Peter and Judas Iscariot, between the man who dies in the act of murder or drunkenness, and men like Baxter, George Herbert, Wilberforce, and McShane. Surely, an eternity in such a miserably confused crowd would be worse than annihilation itself. Surely, such a heaven would be no better than hell. D. The interests of all holiness and morality are directly against these teachers. If all men and women alike are God's children, whatever is the difference between them in their lives, and all alike going to heaven, however different they may be from one another here in the world, where is the use of laboring after holiness at all? What motive remains for living soberly, righteously, and godly? What does it matter how men conduct themselves if all go to heaven and nobody goes to hell? Surely the heathen poets and philosophers of Greece and Rome could tell us something better and wiser than this. Surely a doctrine which is subversive of holiness and morality and takes away all motives to exertion carries on the face of it the stamp of its origin. It is of earth and not of heaven. It is of the devil and not of God. E. The Bible is against these teachers from first to last. Hundreds of texts might be quoted which are diametrically opposed to their theories. These texts must be rejected summarily if the Bible is to square with their views. There may be no reason why they should be rejected, but to suit the theology I speak of, they must be thrown away. At this rate, the authority of the whole Bible is soon at an end. And what do men give us in its place? Nothing, nothing at all. They rob us of the bread of life and do not give us in its stead so much as a stone. Once more I warn all into whose hands this volume may fall to beware of this theology. I charge you to hold fast the doctrine which I have been endeavoring to uphold in this paper. Remember what I have said and never let it go. 
No inheritance of glory without sonship to God. No sonship to God without an interest in Christ. No interest in Christ without your own personal faith. This is God's truth. Never forsake it. Who now among the readers of this paper desires to know whether he is a son of God? Ask yourself this question and ask it this day. And ask it as in God's sight whether you have repented and believed. Ask yourself whether you are experimentally acquainted with Christ and united to Him in heart. If not, you may be very sure you are no son of God. You are not yet born again. You are yet in your sins. Your Father in creation, God may be, but your reconciled and pardoning Father, God is not. Yes, the church and world may agree to tell you to the contrary. The clergy and laity unite in flattering you. Your sonship is little worth or nothing in the sight of God. Let God be true and every man a liar. Without faith in Christ, you are no son of God. You are not born again. Who is there among the readers of this paper who desires to become a son of God? Let that person see and feel his sins and flee to Christ for salvation, and this day he shall be placed among the children. Only acknowledge thine iniquity, and they hold on the hand that Jesus holds out to thee this day, and sonship with all its privileges is thine own. Only confess thy sins and bring them unto Christ, and God is faithful and just to forgive thee thy sins and cleanse thee from all unrighteousness. First John 1, verse 9. This very day all things shall pass away and all things become new. This very day thou shalt be forgiven, pardoned, accepted in the Beloved. Ephesians 1, verse 6. This very day Thou shalt have a new name given to thee in heaven. Thou didst take up this book, A Child of Wrath. Thou shalt lie down tonight, A Child of God. Mark this, if thy professed desire after sonship is sincere, if thou art truly weary of thy sins, and hast really something more than a lazy wish to be free, there is real comfort for thee. It is all true. It is all written in Scripture, even as I have put it down. I dare not raise barriers between thee and God. This day I say, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be a son and be saved. Who is there among the readers of this paper that is a son of God indeed? Rejoice, I say, and be exceeding glad of your privileges. Rejoice, for you have good cause to be thankful. Remember the words of the beloved apostle. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. First John 3, 1. How wonderful that heaven should look down on earth, that the holy God should set his affections on sinful man 
and admit him into his family. What the, the world does not understand you, what though the men of this world laugh at you and cast out your name as evil, let them laugh if they will. God is your Father. You have no need to be ashamed. The Queen can create a nobleman. The bishops can ordain clergymen. But queens, lords, and commons, bishops, priests, and deacons, all together cannot, of their own power, make one Son of God or one of greater dignity than the Son of God. The man that can call God his Father and Christ his elder brother, that man may be poor and lowly, yet he never need be ashamed. Two. Let me show in the second place the special evidences of the true Christian's relation to God. How shall a man make sure work of his own sonship? How shall he find out whether he is one that has come to Christ by faith and been born again? What are the marks and signs and tokens by which the sons of God may be known? This is a question which all who love eternal life ought to ask. This is a question to which the verses of Scripture I am asking you to consider, like many others, supply an answer. One, the sons of God, for one thing, are all led by His Spirit. What says the Scripture which heads this paper? As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Romans 8.14 They are all under the leading and teaching of a power which is almighty, though unseen, even the power of the Holy Ghost. They no longer turn every man to his own way and walk every man in the light of his own eyes and follow every man his own natural heart's desire. The Spirit leads them. The Spirit guides them. There is a movement in their hearts, lives, and affections which they feel, though they may not be able to explain, and a movement which is always more or less in the same direction. They are led away from sin, away from self-righteousness, away from the world. This is the road by which the Spirit leads God's children, those whom God adopts he teaches and trains. He shows them their own hearts. He makes them weary of their own ways. He makes them long for inward peace. They are led to Christ. They are led to the Bible. They are led to prayer. They are led to holiness. This is the beaten path along which the Spirit makes them to travel. Those whom God adopts, He always sanctifies he makes sin very bitter to them. He makes holiness very sweet. It is the Spirit who leads them to Sinai and first shows them the law that their hearts may be broken. It is He who leads them to Calvary and shows them the cross that their hearts may be bound up and healed. It is He who leads them to Pisgah and gives them distinct views of the promised land that their hearts may be cheered. When they are taken into the wilderness and taught to see their own emptiness, 
It is the leading of the Spirit when they are carried up to Tabor or Hermon and lifted up with glimpses of the glory to come. It is the leading of the Spirit. Each and all of God's sons is the subject of these leadings. Each and every one is willing in the day of the Spirit's power and yields himself to it. And each and all is led by the right way to bring him to a city of habitation. Psalm 110, verse 3, and 107, verse 7. Settle this down in your heart, and do not let it go. The sons of God are a people led by the Spirit of God, and always led more or less in the same way. Their experience will tally wonderfully when they compare notes in heaven. This is one mark of sonship. Two, furthermore, all the sons of God have the feelings of adopted children towards their Father in heaven. What says the scripture which heads this paper? Ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Romans 8, 15. The sons of God are delivered from that slavish fear of God which sin begets in the natural heart. They are redeemed from that feeling of guilt which made Adam hide himself in the trees of the garden and Cain go out from the presence of the Lord. Genesis 3, 8 and 4, verse 16. They are no longer afraid of God's holiness and justice and majesty. They no longer feel as if there was a great gulf and a barrier between themselves and God, and as if God was angry with them and must be angry with them because of their sins. From these chains and fetters of the soul, the sons of God are delivered. Their feelings towards God are now those of peace and confidence. They see Him as a Father reconciled in Christ Jesus. They look on Him as a God whose attributes are all satisfied by their great Mediator and Peacemaker, the Lord Jesus. As a God who is just and yet the justifier of everyone that believeth on Jesus. Romans 3.26 As a Father, they draw near to Him with boldness, as a father, they can speak to him with freedom. They have exchanged the spirit of bondage for that of liberty and the spirit of fear for that of love. They know that God is holy, but they are not afraid. They know that they are sinners, but they are not afraid. Though holy, they believe that God is completely reconciled. Those sinners, they believe they are clothed all over with Jesus Christ. Such is the feeling of the sons of God. I allow that some of them have this feeling more vividly than others. Some of them carry about scraps and remnants of the old spirit of bondage to their dying day. Many of them have fits and paroxysms of the old man's complaint of fear returning upon them at intervals but very few of the sons of God could be found 
who would not say, if cross-examined, that since they knew Christ, they have had very different feelings towards God from what they ever had before. They feel as if something like the old Roman form of adoption had taken place between themselves and their Father in heaven. They feel as if he had said to each one of them, Wilt thou be my son? And as if their hearts had replied, I will. Let us try to grasp this also and hold it fast. The sons of God are a people who feel towards God in a way that the children of the world do not. They feel no more slavish fear towards Him. They feel towards Him as a reconciled parent. This, then, is another mark of sonship. Three, but again, the sons of God have the witness of the Spirit in their consciences. What says the Scripture which heads this paper? The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Romans 8.16 The sons of God have got something within their hearts which tells them there is a relationship between themselves and God. They feel something which tells them that old things are passed away and all things become new, that guilt is gone, that peace is restored, that heaven's door is open and hell's door is shut. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves 
would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.